Daily news and analysis. We keep you informed and inspired. This is World Today. Hello and welcome to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Coming up, Honduran President Silmara Castro is on first visit to China after the two countries established diplomatic ties. We discuss more on the future of China-Honduras relations. Saudi Arabia announces billions of dollars in investment deals at Arab-China summit. What factors have contributed to the growing economic and diplomatic ties between China and Middle Eastern countries? The Biden administration considers rejoining the UNESCO six years after Donald Trump withdrew from it. What's behind the decision? And Donald Trump has been indicted on 37 criminal counts tied to his handling of classified documents. Could he go to prison? First, on today's show, Chinese President Xi Jinping has affirmed the country's determination to develop friendly relations with Honduras. While meeting with visiting Honduran President Xiomara Castro in Beijing, President Xi said China is ready to support Honduras in its economic and social development. He also said Castro's visit opens a new chapter in China-Honduras ties. The Chinese president also pledged to work with his Honduran counterpart to guide and push forward bilateral ties from a strategic and long-term perspective. Castro is on a six-day visit to China. Her visit coincides with Honduras opening its first embassy in China two months after both sides established diplomatic relations. For more, we are now joined on the line by Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. Good evening, Dr. He. Hi, good evening. Um, so first of all, what do you make of the significance of President Silmaro Castro's visit to China? Uh, of course, this uh, visit is very important. Uh, we all know Honduras had uh, signed a diplomatic ties establishment with China, uh, People's Republic of China, uh, in the March. So you see, uh, from March until now, just uh, within three months, and then the Honduras president uh, uh, Castro already uh, made this uh, state visit to China happening. And also this uh, embassy uh, of Honduras in Beijing also opened. So this speed uh, is very fast by itself. And also we see the Central American countries. Uh, normally this is a very strong base, so-called strong base, uh, for the Taiwan, uh, this so-called diplomatic tie. Uh, so, you know, Honduras is a very uh, influential country in the Central American region. So with Honduras switch, it's a diplomatic ties from Taiwan now to the mainland China. I think it will play another uh, very important like uh, uh, role for setting example uh, for other uh, those remaining those uh, uh, Central American countries, even as large as uh, the total uh, we know in the world now total there are uh, just uh, 13 other countries, uh, some in the uh, Central American area some in those uh, Pacific, uh, those island countries. Uh, there's one even in the Africa continent. So for those countries at large, they also uh, will feel uh, this impact from Honduras, uh, their diplomatic ties made with China. As the uh, Honduras president said uh, by herself, uh, she said this, this time around, uh, Honduras will reshape uh, its uh, diplomatic direction. And uh, with the uh, establishment with China, and then that will bring uh, those new those vision, politically and even culturally, uh, for guiding Honduras uh, this diplomatic direction and the future development. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are the main areas of discussion between uh, Castro and Chinese officials during this historic meeting? And how will that shape the future of collaboration between the two countries? Well, we all know Honduras uh, is, uh, you know, uh, least developed country uh, in Central America. So they have a great potential in agriculture, uh, but so far the industrialization level are remain uh, relatively low. So this is a great complementary uh, between Honduras and uh, China. Uh, we have a lot of uh, this uh, extra industrial productivity capacity. So ever since 2010, China already becoming the leading. Uh, the number one industrialization, uh, this, uh, you know, upstream, downstream, the whole set of uh, this industrialization country, and the many, many, uh, this uh, actual industrial productivity already uh, in China. So we have a plenty of this capacity to help Honduras to develop their economy. 
and plus agricultural area, the Honduras has a rich potential, but uh, their technical know-how uh, remain relatively low. Uh, so China, you see, we have developed a very advanced uh, this modern uh, agricultural technology, and also a lot of those very good uh, those uh, seeds. Uh, like we have uh, this, uh, uh, you know, hybrid hybrid uh, this uh, rice uh, invented by our past uh, the great uh, agricultural scientist uh, Yuan Longping. So all of that uh, we have successfully made China, you know, with the very limited uh, arable land, but successfully made the Chinese people are uh, the number one population country in the world, and they realized that this, uh, you know, the food surplus and uh, not only feed all the Chinese people and also can export. A lot of uh, food arrives uh, to the other countries, like even humanitarian assistance to those countries facing the famine, uh, those challenges, for example, in the home of Africa. So with those two uh, major areas, I think a lot lots of uh, uh, those cooperation uh, things can be conducted. Of course, plus many more. Uh, Honduras also wants to develop uh, like a digital economy, how to develop the e-commerce, uh, all of that. So China, of course, we can also help a lot of uh, uh, this assistance today. Mm-hmm. Yes, sure. So what are the main factors, you think, that have led multiple Latin American countries, including Honduras, to break ties with, with Taiwan region and establish diplomatic relations with China? Well, I think, uh, number one, this is the main trend, of course, in the world. Uh, so far, with the Honduras uh, joined uh, this uh, big, uh, you know, a group uh, with the diplomatic ties with China, now we have already established as many as 182 uh, diplomatic ties uh, with this uh, 182 countries, actually. So in the UN, uh, this uh, membership, uh, this big family, there are as many as 193 countries. You see, of course, that is a majority, majority uh, countries already, uh, you, you know, have a diplomatic ties with China. So this is a main uh, strain, uh, definitely. And then China also serving as the permanent uh, uh, this seat in the UN Security Council. So we are the one of those big five uh, in the city in the uh, Security Council. Of course, uh, China has the most of this uh, uh, global influence, uh, no matter diplomatic and security influence, as well as China is the number two biggest economy in the world. So with a lot of those capacity, economically, technology, and also those uh, modern, advanced, uh, those uh, technical know-how, all of that. So if you're joining uh, like a diplomatic ties with China, uh, with this, uh, like 180 more countries, uh, it means now you join this uh, mainstream. And you can also benefit it from the cooperation uh, with China, now the initiative for the One Belt, One Road initiative. Uh, you see even South America continent. Now there are as many as eight, uh, even nine countries now join. Uh, they signed the cooperation with China on One Belt, One Road, uh, this initiative, MOU. So they have already benefited a lot uh, from this, uh, uh, you know, this ties uh, with China, uh, with those investments from China uh, involved in infrastructure building, uh, in the like uh, mining industry, resources industry, and agricultural cooperation, and also health. Uh, cooperation, education cooperation. Now we are receiving more and more uh, those uh, students uh, from uh, South America, Central America. Now they got the Chinese government scholarship. Yeah, we are also offering uh, different kinds of human resources training. Uh, those uh, programs uh, with those countries uh, by a large. So anyway, yeah, with all kinds of uh, those uh, cooperation going on for those countries, they remain have so-called diplomatic ties uh, with Taiwan. Now they feel, you know, they also open their eyes widely to watch, yeah, what kind of development now China, People's Republic China, yeah, with other countries they have already joined the BI. Of course, diplomatic ties uh, established with uh, PRC, People's Republic China, will be the precondition for establishing uh, this BI. So they watch uh, closely, open their eyes widely, so that is why they made this decision. They also need a switch uh, to China. Otherwise, mm-hmm. uh, they will be yeah, lost the historical time to develop themselves. Yes, but you know, just as China and Honduras were preparing to establish diplomatic relations, 
The American Institute in Taiwan accused China of making unfulfilled promises in exchange for recognition. And also in 2018, a former U.S. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo warned Panama of doing business with China because of China's predatory economic acti- activities. How do you look at those accusations? Well, of course, those accusations are uh, all, I think, are groundless and only shows their own worry. And like U.S. and like Taiwan, uh, because now the same team up are uh, trying to, you know, against China. Uh, actually, uh, you know, with those Honduras plus many others, their decision made already proves that is this one China policy has been abided by by majority majority of the countries in the world. So this is a mainstream. So if you want to against this mainstream, like from so saying from Pompeo. Uh, like those some acting done by the Taiwan authority, actually you just uh, you know uh, find the dead end by yourself. So you mean are we witnessing a new era of competition between China and the U.S. in Latin America? And how does China's engagement differ from that of the U.S. in terms of uh, development assistance and investments in the region? Well, China's approach actually we just uh, be doing good. And then uh, others will naturally close to you. Uh, like you have been offering this BI, this is already becoming uh, this public, uh, you know, international public good. Uh, it offers uh, a lot of help for, uh, you know, push the global economy recovery and also helping the partner countries to develop uh, their economy because now all the countries suffer from the global economy, you know, this uh, uh, rather than increase, uh, but uh, now it's in the downturn. So all the countries are suffering. They all find every means uh, to trying to get more those uh, impactive uh, impactance and um, uh, motivation and the new driving forces uh, from all over. So this, this reason, of course, uh, will also drive them uh, to trying to find like a new uh, this opportunity that is now very clear. China's SBI, uh, China now with our reopen, uh, it's becoming uh, this uh, economic uh, growth rate now has been all uh, looked in a very good way by World Bank and IMF. So all of that uh, is becoming the new engine now for uh, global GDP growth. So this is by nature. I think the countries all join. Yes, and it's reported that uh, Honduras will soon begin talks toward a trade deal with China. So what do you think we can expect from that? Oh, yes, uh, it's very likely uh, because Honduras now eager to make some change for the economic development. And China also, uh, we, uh, even just recently I was in trade in Shanghai. I talked with uh, uh, like uh, Ecuador, uh, also South American countries, their economic counselor in Beijing. Uh, he told me uh, Ecuador becoming uh, was the very first country in South America continent to establish this free trade uh, this agreement with China. So uh, ever since that, they, in the years past, they have benefited a lot. So this uh, Ecuador example has already set example, uh, you know, for other South American countries as well as Central American countries to, you know, follow the shoot. Uh, I think with this free trade, uh, this trade deal has been linked. And then we will see uh, both countries' bilateral relationship uh, can be uh, coming up with a new chapter. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Dr. He Wenping, Senior Research Fellow at Chinese Academy of Social Sciences. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. Welcome back. This is World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Saudi Arabia has announced billions of dollars in investment deals between China and the Arab world during the China-Arab Business Conference in Riyadh. Agreements worth 10 billion U.S. dollars were signed on the first day of the event. Among them is a 5.6 billion U.S. dollars deal between the Saudi Investment Ministry and Chinese electric car maker Human Horizons. Saudi Foreign Minister Ben Fahan Al Saud said the conference is an opportunity to consolidate the historical Arab-China friendship, build a shared future, and promote peace and development in the world. 
China is the largest trading partner of the Arab countries. In 2022, trade volume between the two sides reached 430 billion U.S. dollars, a 30% increase from 2021. Saudi-China trade made up about 25% of the total volume of trade between China and the Arab countries last year. For more, we are now joined by Dr. Wang Jin, associate professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Wang. My pleasure again. Um. So, what factors have contributed to the growing commercial and diplomatic ties between China and Middle Eastern countries? I think a lot of factors that actually contributed to the growing commercial and diplomatic ties between China and、uh, Middle Eastern states, especially Arab states,、uh, because diplomatically, China is a country that upholds. Uh, the principle of mutual respect and mutual equality with other states, and we respect the sovereignty and independence of the other countries. And in, and China does not have the history or experience of humiliating other countries, especially in the Middle East. So that's why I think、uh, that earns help earns a lot of uh, uh, respect and welcome of the Middle Eastern countries. And meanwhile, China's、uh, economic system or economic structure actually.、Uh, Uh, could help、uh, develop a kind of、uh, complementary or win-win、uh, uh, structure with the、uh, economic cooperation with、uh, the Middle Eastern countries because China has uh,、um, a very strong、um, uh, uh, industrial capabilities and also China's products enjoys a very good reputation among the world. While Middle Eastern countries、uh, hope to uh, use their uh, uh, their their、uh, The money, their、uh, revenues that earned from the energy sectors to develop their own countries. So that's why,、uh, in the future, for example, the, a lot of the cooperation areas of commercial, such as the,、uh, such as the financial, such as uh, uh, good importing and exporting, and such as、uh, other cooperation、uh, mechanism, could be easily、uh, found and established between two sides. So I think that's why. Uh, uh, we can witness the growing commercial and diplomatic ties between the two sides in the future. Yes, and as we know, this conference came after a recent landmark Chinese brokered、uh, deal between Iran and Saudi Arabia. So, how do you look at China's evolving role in the region, and how does that impact the dynamics of traditional alliances in the region, particularly those with the U.S.? I think that China's evolving role.、Uh, Actually, give the new momentum to the region because traditionally, as you mentioned, that United States dominates the region, and United States strategic thinking actually determines the regional affairs.、Uh, for example, United States traditional、uh, from United States perspective, that the region has some kind of the bad state and so-called bad state, and、uh, other states、uh, divisions and all the problem and divisions are resulted from this kind of so-called bad state, and then. The United States could utilize this kind of the division and hatred to structure its uh, its own uh, uh, strategic vision in the region. But, but、uh, from China's perspective,、uh, we believe that、uh, there were yes, there were some problems, but this problem are largely resulted from the underdevelopment and the poverty、uh, and backwardness. Uh, in the region, so that is why we need more cooperation. We need more mechanism to facilitate and encourage this kind of cooperation. Uh, so uh, China's growing role, or、uh, we call it kind of evolving role in the region,、uh, will actually、uh, transform the traditional、uh, strategic thinking in the, in the Middle East. That these these regional countries can close closely work together by putting aside their differences and the divisions and seek new common grounds. So I, that's why I think China's is role is is quite unique and be very very important in the region, and also that the China's role, evolving role, has already and will be continue uh, being uh, respected. And welcome the by original countries. Well, but just a few days before this conference,、uh, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken visited Saudi Arabia, and that was largely seen as a message for China as well as U.S. allies in the Middle East. So, what do you think Biden's,、uh, I mean Blinken's trip was all about, and what does it tell us about America's Middle East strategy? Uh, I think the Blinken's very、uh, major purpose、uh, was to send a message that、uh, United States still cares about the region, 
I mean, the region of the Middle East, and also still hopes to uh, enhance their close ties with the Middle Eastern countries. But, uh, but there were also some other topics. For example, Blinken hopes to bring uh, Saudi and Israel much closer, uh, uh, with uh, with the aim to help them establish uh, to establish the diplomatic relations. And also, Blinken hopes to reconciliate uh, the issues such as the energy cooperation, such as the regional crisis. Uh, with uh, Saudi Arabia and other Arab states. So that's why uh, I think his, his visit covers a lot. But uh, I think the, the very fundamental difference is between China and the uh, United States can uh, be suggested here, that the uh, United States still hopes to use uh, its very dominant role uh, in the region to keep this kind of dominant role in the future to help, um, uh, to help construct and then to utilize this original divisions and original, uh, the original, the traditional hatred to benefit its own interests. But then China's role is different. China hopes to uh, construct a, a new kind of the partnership with the region, regional countries to construct the, the very prosperous and uh, a positive future. So I think, um, yes, maybe Anthony Blinken, he is with it, hopes to do something, but I don't think he's, uh, his visit will actually uh, succeed, and I think that China's role will be more and more uh, welcomed in the region. Mm-hmm. Well, when Saudi Arabia's energy minister was asked about uh, the Western skepticisms over the growing Saudi-China ties, uh, he said he totally ignored it, as he believed Saudi Arabia doesn't have to be engaged in a zero-sum game since there are so many global opportunities. I mean, how, how do you look at those comments, or do you feel that um, Saudi Arabia is still um, striking a balance between its security alliance with the U.S. and its trade relationship with China? Uh, I think yes. Uh, uh, that I, I think the, 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 the Prince Abdullah bin Salman of his statement or his uh, the, his uh, his remarks suggested that uh, during the process of the cooperation with China, Saudi Arabia uh, has been and will continue to face this pressure. And the harassment from the uh, the other Western countries, because as we mentioned that the uh, that the, on the one hand the Western countries' strategic thinking in the region are totally different from China's uh, uh, landscape. Uh, I mean China's plan. And on the other hand, uh, uh, the the Western countries they believe that the Middle Eastern countries should stand with them together to uh, construct a kind of containment circle against China. And all of this, I mean both of these. Uh, United States and the Western countries' pressure are against the, actually against the Saudi Arabia's not only national interests but also the uh, Saudi Arabia's uh, national independence, because uh, it is first of all it is uh, Saudi Arabia their own freedom to choose who to whom to cooperate with, and this is own uh, their own freedom to choose what kind of areas that areas of should be uh, con- uh, cooperated. And then on the other hand, the Saudi Arabia, I think, they have the right to say no to the other countries, and especially on the projects that will benefit themselves greatly. Uh, so I think uh, Saudi Arabia will continue to resist this kind of the pressure. This pressure will continue, but they will continually, uh, uh, continually to resist this pressure from the Western countries together with other uh, Gulf, uh, Gulf Arab states and other Arab states. Mm-hmm. So that's why uh, I think he will do so. And by the way, very briefly, how do you look at that deal between Saudi Investment Ministry and uh, Human Horizons? And how does that say about the potential sectors for collaboration between the two countries? Uh, I, I think that uh, the, the, the prospect between the two countries will be very positive because on the one hand, China has a Belt and Road Initiative and Saudi Arabia has their own uh, national vision of 2030. So this will be very complimentary. And on the other hand, the two sides shared a lot of the uh, common understandings about the strategic thinking, about how the states should cooperate with each other, how the states should make, uh, how the states should develop ties with each other. So this will benefit and become the very fundamental uh, foundations for the future bilateral relations. And I think that China's uh, relations with Saudi Arabia will become an example not only for other countries' relations in the Middle East, but also for the, all of the world in mm-hmm. the future. Thank you, Dr. Wang Jin, Associate Professor at Northwest University in Xi'an, China. You're listening to World Today. We'll be back in a minute.
You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. The United States expressed its interest in rejoining the UNESCO after withdrawing from the agency six years ago. The State Department said it had delivered a letter seeking readmission to the Paris-based body. The U.S. owes a significant amount of money to the organization, but earlier this year, the administration set aside 150 million U.S. dollars in its current budget plan to pay for return to UNESCO. For more, we are now joined on the line by Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. Good evening, Harvey. Thanks for joining us. Sure.、Um, so, can you remind us a little bit on why Donald Trump withdrew the United States from the UNESCO back in 2017? It was so typical of Trump. I hate to think back of those days and to think that they may come again in a couple years. But at that time, Trump was on a tear, and he pulled out of so many multinational commitments. So UNESCO was only one. And another example is, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement. Now, the UNESCO withdrawal was done at the behest of the conservative Jewish interest in the United States, at the instigation of the conservative Israeli government. That, to me, is too often the tail wagging the American political dog. And there were two cited reasons. The first. Was that UNESCO had、uh, an anti-Israeli bias and had to be reformed. The second was so typical of Trump, who in his personal business life had a reputation for often not paying bills after services were rendered. At the time, as you pointed out, the U.S. was already in arrears to the UN, actually for more than half a billion dollars. And in fact, the U.S. under、uh, President Obama had stopped paying its dues in 2011 because of a law that cut off funding for any organization that accepted Palestine as a few, full member, as UNESCO did. It was quite a financial hit to the UN agency, as the U.S. actually paid over one fifth of its annual budget.、Um- Tell us more about how the relationship between UNESCO and the United States has evolved over time. Well, this pullout is、uh, kind of déjà vu all over again. It's really been a seesaw relationship with so many ups and downs. President Ronald Reagan pulled out of UNESCO in 1983 when the U.S. concluded that the organization. Uh, that it and the U.S. allies had dominated and controlled since UNESCO was founded in 1945, had become impossible to continue to strong arm with so many newly minted members of the global South, and with China playing an increasing role in the United Nations system. And so, in one of the frankest admissions of a U.S. official ever, the then U.N. ambassador.、Uh, to, uh, From the U.S. said, "The countries which have the votes don't pay the bill, and those who pay the bill don't have the votes." The U.S. rejoined in 2002 under President George W. Bush,、uh, whose father, incidentally, was U.N. ambassador under Richard Nixon. So it's been an up and down relationship the whole time.、Mm-hmm. Then, what what factors have led to the Biden administration's decision to seek re-entry into UNESCO? Uh, well, look, it's not necessarily because Joe Biden loves education, science, and culture. There's a one-word answer, I think, to your question. That answer is China, and the U.S. has said as much.、Uh, interestingly, in China's、uh, early days, Chairman Mao disliked and distrusted international organizations exactly like the U.N. that were controlled by the West. He much preferred the non-aligned movement. But part of Deng Xiaoping's reform and opening up in the late 1970s and 80s was to join the UN and other multinational organizations as a means of more actively participating in what's called the rules-based international order. And China was increasingly powerful、uh, country and is even more powerful today. And so now the Chinese are all in in the UN. And、uh, you've headed up key UN agencies like the UN Industrial Development Organization here in Vienna, and China is a major contributor to the UN budget and the second biggest contributor to UN peacekeeping forces 
And let's not forget the Chinese lives that have been unfortunately sacrificed in the process. So the Biden administration really since day one felt that in order to compete with China's more muscular presence in the world and at the UN, it has to get back in UNESCO to fight the educational, the scientific, the cultural wars from the US perspective and not be shut out of this important international forum. And this is logical because having twice shut itself out of UNESCO, the US hasn't had much of a voice in many, many years. Mm -hmm. So what would be the process for the U.S. to rejoin UNESCO? Uh, the process is actually moving very quickly, and it's mm -hmm. been underway for some time. There's a briefing today on this uh, new development, and all members will have to approve the readmission of the U.S. The U.S. is going to have to agree a plan to pay the half a billion dollars in arrears that it owes. And after that, the U.S. will run for a seat on the powerful uh, UNESCO uh, executive committee. And it's pretty much as simple as that. But are there any potential challenges or obstacles uh, there, either domestically or within the organization? Yeah, I'd say that there are. The, in fact, while the Israeli government has signed off on the plan, it's not known how some of the UNESCO members uh, uh, will uh, react because there's been so much animosity. But I expect that the U.S. will be allowed to rejoin because the money is really necessary to keep UNESCO going to achieve its mission. But the big question mark for me is how American firsters, the Trumpers, who see the U.N. as a global government that usurps U.S. leadership and sovereignty, will react. But I think we can expect the most extreme of them to be completely unhappy and trying to throw up numerous political and economic roadblocks now and in the future. Mm -hmm. Okay, thank you, Harvey Zoden, former vice president of ABC TV Network and senior fellow of the Center for China and Globalization. You're listening to World Today. Stay with us. You're listening to World Today. I'm Zhao Ying. Former U.S. President Donald Trump has been indicted on 37 criminal counts tied to his handling of classified documents, including information regarding U.S. nuclear secrets and military plans. The charges allege that he unlawfully retained these files at his Florida estate and lied to investigators. In a defiant appearance at the Georgia Republican Convention, Trump told its supporters that the charges were ridiculous and baseless, adding that they would go down as among the most horrific abuses of power in American history. Donald Trump is running for president again in 2024, but legal experts say the criminal charges against him could lead to substantial prison time if he is convicted. For more, we are now joined on the line by Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director at Lehman, Lee & Shi Law Firm. Thanks for joining us, Dr. Lehman. Hey, great to be here. So what exactly are the key criminal charges against Donald Trump and what potential legal consequences could he face if he is convicted? Well, like you said, he's facing his second indictment. I mean, it's a, it's a historic first for a U.S. president over a Justice Department investigation into the removal of governmental documents from the White House, which were taken uh, to Mr. Trump's Florida state in Mar-a-Lago after he left office. So, I mean, I think everyone saw with great pomp and circumstance that the FBI guns blazing, uh, you know, sirens uh, blurring and, um, and, and uh, the lights flashing. And they went onto the property and uh, then they went and seized that, uh, um, those documents. And there were some 11,000 documents in that seizure, including about 100 marked as classified, and some were labeled as top secret. So uh, we don't know really much about what's in the documents, but classified material usually contains information that officials feel could damage national security if made public. Mm -hmm. So uh, he's looking at some, you know, some serious jail time. Not all of this has been made fully public, uh, other than th this is going indeed going forward and it will unravel or unwrap uh, before us um, and, um, and the, you know, in the days to come and weeks to come. 
Okay, but Donald Trump has said those charges are ridiculous and baseless, and he claimed they were an abuse of power. What is your assessment of those uh, of these claims? Yeah, you're right. I mean, he made a recent appearance at the Georgia Republican Convention, which is the state convention in which he made uh, those statements. Of course, I mean, this is a largely pro-Trump uh, group. I mean, there were a, a couple of other speakers that were there. One was uh, his former vice president. Um, Michael uh, 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 Pence and, um, uh, you know, Mike Pence, for example, said he also felt that this was baseless. So Mike Pence is running against him. And somehow he managed to say it. there was another uh, candidate that was also there. And the uh, and that was uh, Ron DeSantis. And I think that uh, you know, he didn't come. He never spoke about Trump actually in the first person. He just said that the idea is not a good one. And let me just try to put it in context. Law is both there as a sword and a shield. And so the law is there to both protect and then also to, um, you know, to to punish if, if need be. And so I think what Mr. Trump is trying to say is that, um, you know, they're coming after him. This is uh, baseless. And in turn, they'll eventually come after you. I mean, People in the American public, um, whoever they is, I guess, would be the the uh, the deep state or the establishment that is kind of anti-Trump or has this kind of um, what you call Trump derangement syndrome, where everything is about Trump and everything is about trying to get Trump. So, um, you know, Mr. Trump has responded that this is baseless. You know, time will tell whether it's baseless or not. But I mean, you know, Mr. Trump is I think he's 75, soon to turn 76. And, uh, you know, he could face enough time in prison if he was convicted of this, which would be a life sentence. So, I mean, you know, it's not nothing what's what's happened. OK, so do you think these ongoing legal problems will have an impact on his uh, potential bid for the presidency in 2024? And will it be a positive impact or, or negative impact? Well, it's never going to be dull. I can say that much. I do. I think that uh, I think it'll actually enhance his um, his chances in the 2024 election. I think that the thought process is to try to hinder, um, you know, his his going forward with the election somehow by indicting him. That you know that really has not stood in the way of people in the past. There was a guy called Eugene Victor Debs who actually ran for president from a jail cell. So he was you know he was um, already you know convicted of something at that point in time when he was running. Uh, in the 1920s. So, I mean, we, we have had history where people have had indictments, where people have been uh, facing criminal charges that are, you know, Lyndon LaRouche is another one who uh, who ran, uh, was a kind of a perennial candidate in, um, you know, in, in not in the Republican or the Democratic Party, and Eugene Victor Debs was not in that either. But uh, there is precedent with people being indicted. There is precedent with uh, with people having legal troubles that are, quote unquote, running for president, never in a major party that we've seen. So this is kind of a new thing. I do think that people who are pro-Trump will dig in and I think that they will, um, you know, this will solidify his base. I think people who are running against him are hesitant to support what's going on. I mean, or say that they support what's going on because it, it just uh, it doesn't smack well of, of keeping party unity. But I, I don't. I don't really see that it's going to change anybody's mind one way or the other. I think people who don't like Mr. Trump will continue not to like him. I think people who like Mr. Trump will will double down and, and like him. And so and I, and I think that that number is quite large. The base that he has is quite large and they're not going to be dissuaded because of this, for sure. Yeah, and, and we see some uh, Republican lawmakers like Andy Biggs, who wrote, wrote on Twitter, we have now reached a war phase. So how how does those kind of rhetoric from high profile Republicans hide the fears that uh, the Trump's campaign against his legal troubles could trigger political violence? Yeah, I mean, it, it very well could. I mean, I mean, it's this is we're in uncharted territories with regards to the way that there's been a division between uh, the, the United States. I mean, and, and I don't think I've seen as much polarization except back in the 1960s and the early 70s with the Vietnam War, so uh, which led to protests, um, and some of them turned violent. Kent State was violent in, in the late 60s, and, and a few people were killed at that point in time. So, I mean, is it 
beyond the realm of possibility? No, it's not beyond the realm of it. Do I think, I mean, the reason why people run for office rather than, uh, you know, have violent outbursts uh, one way or the other is because they want a democratic process. They want, uh, and we're a constitutional republic. And so, uh, you know, I think that Andy Briggs certainly, uh, or Biggs, I mean, he can certainly say under the freedom of speech, whatever the heck he wants to say. But I don't necessarily mean that, it, I don't necessarily think that this is going to turn into violence. I think that there are people that want it to turn into violence. Um, but I, I don't think that the majority of, of Americans or even Trump supporters are in that. That would be fringe characters on, on both sides that would, would like this to turn violent for sure. Well, actually, according to a recent survey by the University of Chicago's project on security and threats, 4.4% of the U.S. population, that's an estimated 12 million U.S. adults, believe that violence is justified to return Donald Trump to power. I mean, uh, how do you look at that figure? <laughs> yeah, where do I begin? I mean, University of Chicago, I am, a, I am a son of Chicago, native of Chicago, and I can tell you this. I mean, University of Chicago is in Chicago, but not a part of Chicago, meaning that it's so way out there. It's, you know, on a different planet. So, I mean, you know, God bless all those smart guys at the University of Chicago where um, they're doing something like having this project on security and threats. Talking about 4.4 percent, I, you know, I don't know what their sampling was, but, um, you know, that, that they, they're, you know, an estimated 12 million adults, they say here, believe that justified to return Trump to power. I, I get what you just said. But, um, you know, I myself don't personally know those people. And I'm not saying it's beyond the realm of possibility, but I, I think that, uh, you know, that there's there's an element of folks and University of Chicago is kind of a standard bearer with that, that are certainly uh, Southern Poverty Law Center is another one. These are folks that are fairly far out there with regards to their thought processes, which is great. I mean, America is a, is a plurality of of uh, voices and, and backgrounds and races and ethnicities. And people can say and put you know, statistics together. I'm reminded of what Benjamin Disraeli said when, you know, when I think about this University of Chicago uh, statistic, it's like there's lies, bigger lies, and then there's statistics. And so I think, you know, our friends over at University of Chicago, like I said, God bless them. They're doing some real brainiac work over there, but uh, I don't really see it as rank and file. And, you know, my, certainly my uh, relatives are all back in Chicago. Um, so I don't I don't see that that's something that they're doing. And certainly Chicago is not moving towards that direction. Mm -hmm. Chicago is an extremely progressive place. It's blue as can be. And Mr. Trump doesn't have even a prayer in the state of Illinois. That's for sure. Um, so it's it's hard to say. I mean, you can mm -hmm. come up with a lot of different statistics. Um, I do think that the, the, this situation is very serious. There's no doubt about it. And, um, you know, to I think people needed to tread very carefully, which I'm not sure that the uh, um, the Justice Department or the FBI or um, other folks are acting rationally, because I think there's an argument that can be said. These documents are prolific with Mr. Pence, mm -hmm. with Mr. Biden, with a whole bunch of other people who are in uh, in the Congress in some way, shape or form. Um, so I think this is a big thing about a lot of steam in the whistle. And I'm not sure that there's much there. I do think that there are people who want to push it into violence. And that would be most regrettable and unfortunate if that was the case. Okay, thank you, Edward Lehman, legal affairs commentator and managing director of Lehman Lee and Shu Law Firm. The U.S. Federal Reserve is set to hold policy setting meeting and announce their decisions this week. What they will do this time has attracted not only attention in the U.S., but across the globe. According to a new World Bank report, the Fed's battle against inflation hasn't caused a recession in the U.S. yet, but it could have economic consequences well beyond U.S. borders. For more, my colleague Zhao Yang spoke with Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation. So first, uh, Dr. Joe, what do you expect the Federal Reserve will do at this week's policy meeting? Yes, we know that uh, the Fed is trying to decide the trend of the 
interest? Well, we see that from different uh, uh, aspects, they, they may have different opinions. Like for their original intentions, as for the Fed, their main target is trying to reduce the inflation rate. Well, the U.S. is still under the pressure of a very high inflation rate. Maybe it's not as high as uh, last year, but it's still very high compared with the historic time in the in the past uh, decade. So if they want to reach that goal, it means that they have to increase the rate again. But from another uh, angles, we know that many uh, people feel that United States is under pressure of uh, the recession. Well, this is another risk, and uh, it's still a widespread risk, not only in the real economy, but wide, um, maybe impact on the financial areas. So if both these two uh, aspects are trying to make decision, I don't think it's a real clear you know, time for the Fed to stop the progress of uh, increasing its interest rate. Maybe it will... Uh, temporarily stop for just uh, one month, and then, then it will still carry out uh, its uh, goal to reduce uh, inflation by raising the interest rate. Mm. And as you mentioned, to curb the record high inflation, the U.S. central bank has hiked the rates for several times in a bit over a year. So what's the consequences for the U.S. economy? When the Fed is increasing its interest rate, it means that uh, the investors can have a uh, better return by uh, putting the money in the bank or, you know, there are still many uh, financial products which has uh, anchored the interest rate of the Fed. So in this regard, the people are intending to put more money in the banking system instead of uh, putting in the real economy. It will reduce the total amount of the money that we can see in the market. Well, from another angle, when its interest has been uh, increased, it means that the people who have borrowed the money from the bank have to pay more interest. It's a kind of a real big burden, especially when the you know, activities of the economy is not so good. So when combined with these two things, it's only, you know, something to do with the domestic uh, economy of the United States, while the Fed will not pay more attention about other countries. So even if in the its domestic uh, market, we still see that increasing of the interest rate maybe not uh, have a very good phenomena for the people who have uh, borrowed a lot of money to pay their houses and the some of them are paying for their education fees. So it's a kind of things especially bad for the people who don't do not have many choices but have to borrow the money from the banks. Mm. And you mentioned the uh, banking sector. So how has the high interest rate impact the uh, U.S. banking sector? For example, the SVB banking crisis, how much responsibility does the federal reserve bear for it and will the u.s banking sector stress still be lingering there for a while actually for the banking systems and you know they are under the monitoring uh, by the fed and other kind of regulations so uh, especially after the global financial crisis we see the u.s government is trying to make more restrictions on the uh, abilities of the banking of the different banks in the United to lend money to the, uh, the potential uh, investors. So they are obliged to pay more for the reserve and try to prevent the risk. Well, in Trump administration, they are trying to release some of these restrictions. This is a really uh, big change on the amount or on the, you know, the money that the bankings can give to the market. Well, as the Fed is increasing its uh, uh, interest rate, many uh, financial market involvement. I, I mean, the banks, the insurance companies, uh, private uh, investors, they have to change their expectation. So it's not only for this time, they are trying to adjust their, their terms of uh, different financial products mm. to put more on the recent, on the short-term investment. And it definitely will put more risk, especially for the short-term. Mm. And people are also worried about the debt issue in the U.S. When talking about the U.S. debt issue, the billionaire investor Ray Dalio said there could be a shortage of U.S. debt buyers. And it stems from the fact that uh, international investors who bought the treasuries got burned by the Federal Reserve interest rate hike. So what do you think of it? And what do you think are the main reasons for the de-dollarization trend? 
Actually, uh, you know, when the foreign investors who are going to buy the the debt of uh, U.S. governments like the treasuries, I, I think that they believe that in the next uh, maybe 10 years or even longer, they will get better return. So the stability and safety of this treasury, of this investment is a guarantee for them to buy it. When they, they found that there are more risks that may be happen in the years or 10 years or some future, they will stop to buy that. They will change to at least to the shorter term, like mm. for the five years or one year. So uh, this is one possibility. And another possibility is that we see the fact that the world is uh, uh, providing more uh, different kind of investment uh, uh, financial products, uh, except for the U.S. dollars. So they can buy a lot of other things, and they fa- they felt the investors they feel that uh, it will be more safer to diversify their investment. So it's a kind of uh, uh, effect that will reduce the demand for the treasuries of U.S. governments, and they, uh, the balance changed has uh, put much more. Uh, impact on the structure of the portfolios by the investing companies, by the uh, some of the sovereign uh, sovereign fund of the different countries, and these uh, really are changing the you know the supply and demand of the financial market. Mm. And the World Bank's new report says the tightening of monetary policy in the U.S. will particularly impact emerging market and developing economies. So how do you look at that and what is the spillover effect of it? The emerging economies they do not have ability to uh, to change what they want to have to buy from the other countries, especially for the financial sectors. Well, on the other hand, they have to pay more money to buy, uh, to import the goods from other countries. So the spillover has impacted them both on the real economy and on the financial sectors. For the real economies, they have to to, to have more US dollars uh, or some related assets to buy the crude oils uh, and also some others they have to buy. That's Dr. Zhou Mi, Senior Research Fellow with Chinese Academy of International Trade and Economic Cooperation, speaking with my colleague Zhao Yan. And that's all the time we have for this edition of World Today. Thank you so much for listening. See you next time.